I'm Zinnia. And I'm Maya. And we've been friends for a long time. But our friendship was brought even closer since both of us experienced unimaginable tragedies with the loss of our babies. Maya, whose son Leo died at just 10 days old, and my daughter Isabel, who was still born at 33 weeks. Since then, our lives have taken us on very different and unexpected paths, not only having to navigate grief, but also some of the more unconventional ways of having a baby. This is Making It to Motherhood, a podcast where we talk about grief, life after loss, journeys to motherhood, and all the ups and downs along the way. So this week, we're talking about stillbirth and what happened when my daughter Isabel was stillborn. Welcome back to another episode of Making It to Motherhood. How have you been, Zinnia? Busy as usual, Maya, sort of just juggling motherhood and doghood work and a house slash city move on top of it all. You know how it is? (laughs) How about yourself? Yeah, well, also adulting hard over here. And I know what you mean about being a dog mum as well as all of the other hats you got to wear. We're looking after someone else's dog for a few weeks. So double dog mum life and toddler mum life. <laughs> life's a juggle, life's a struggle. <laughs> so this week, we're going to talk about the stillbirth of your gorgeous daughter, Isabel, who passed away at 33 weeks and how she ended up in the stars alongside my little Leo. And actually, Zinnia, I don't know if I've I've ever even told you this, but I saw your post with your tragic news about Isabel and that beautiful little picture. But I actually saw that post when I was scrolling through Instagram, having just had Freddie when I was in hospital and, you know, he was napping and I was, I was resting and, you know, you're doing the Instagram scroll. And that's when I saw it. And my heart just broke in a million pieces for you. But those were the moments that kind of brought us so much closer together, haven't they? And, you know, yeah, as friends, you know, being able to sympathize with someone going through, through a loss like that. And then, you know, all of a sudden there I am in hospital with, with my little rainbow. Oh, slightly giving me goose pimples. (laughs) I, I had no idea that you'd, um, yeah, that that was when you, I mean, obviously I knew you'd seen my story and you then got in touch, but I didn't realize it was when you just, just after you'd given birth to Freddie. Yeah. Wow. On the other side of the world. What are the chances? But going back a few steps, let's talk about that whole kind of journey you went through. How was, how was pregnancy with Isabel? I'm not going to lie. It was pretty ropey for the first 20 odd weeks. I was pretty sick, you know, throwing up a good three to four times a day and having to run to the loo at work and step off the tube on my commute. And I know I basically just got used to carrying a plastic bag with me wherever (laughs) I went for those just in case moments. (laughs) But I mean, on on the other side of things, I I'm lucky in that I had good energy levels. I don't tend to put on weight when I'm pregnant. And I guess there's an end game in sight. So I just focused on the end goal of I'm going to get a baby at the end of this. If I need to feel rubbish for a few months, I can deal with that. 
yeah, that is the eye on the prize, isn't it? And did you have kind of birth plan at the end of it once you got through it all? I can say categorically, yes, we had a birth plan. And the reason why I can say that, to give you some context, is that we knew that from a long time before actually Isabel was even conceived. Oh, right. And it goes back to the birth of my first daughter, where we also had a birth plan, which 100% did not go to plan. So we were planning on having a home birth with my first daughter, Ivy. But at the 36-week scan, she was stuck transverse. So sort of her head was by my left elbow, so to speak, and her feet were by my right elbow. So I can't imagine that was comfy. <laughs> I I was fine. Who knows how she was feeling. But you know, the sort of medics explained to me that you don't want to be giving birth to a transverse baby, which I quite understood. So they said unless we could unless she turned, the plan was to have a C section. And we tried a lot of things to to turn her everything from the standard things of you know went for sort of chiropractor and saw an osteopath to the slightly more wacky of going through acupuncture and something called moxibustion which involves I think burning charcoal or herbs onto your little toe I mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah sounds like something Kakar does frankly it was a bit bizarre. Another thing called baby spinning, which involves sort of tipping yourself upside down. Oh, I totally did handstands with both of my pregnancies to get them the right way up. Yeah, the difference being yours was probably in, in the sea, wasn't it? Whereas mine was off a sofa in, in tooting. <laughs> yeah, no, they do recommend that you do it in water. I did do it in the pool and in the sea. <laughs> so I wasn't hanging off furniture, no. <laughs> Yeah. And we even had a ECV, which is a sort of procedure they do in hospital where they, I think they give you something to try and relax your stomach muscles. And then at the same time, physically from the outside, you know, grab the baby and try and turn right. turn her. But she wasn't budging. I mean, but she clearly was like, nah, that's it. So um, we said goodbye to the home birth plan, which my husband was pretty happy about. <laughs> And we said hello to the planned C-section. And that was fine. I made my peace with that. Anyway, went in for the C-section. Now, because she was actually quite stuck transverse, it turned out. And so they ended up doing what is called a T-section. And that is where they vertically cut my abdomen in order to get her out as quickly as possible. So regular C-section would just be a kind of cut sideways across the bottom exactly kind of across your bikini line right yes and a t-section is it's like an upside down t so i still have the cut along the bottom but inside so you can't see this as a scar on the outside but inside they've gone also vertically up so i like to think of it it's like a shape of an anchor (laughs) cool (laughs) or an upside down t anyway so as a consequence of that procedure they told me when I was in recovery, actually, that I would have to have a C-section with any subsequent birth. So the advice is for me not to go into labor and to have a C-section. So there was going to be absolutely no VBAC for me. So yes, I mean, in answer to your question, we did have a birth plan for Isabel. (laughs) And that was it. And that was it. I guess we can talk another time about, you know, coming to terms with having to change your birth plan or even coming to terms with not having your ideal birth plan when you've just given birth to to your first baby. But 
we've kind of already revealed the ending of this story. We know that Isabel was born at 33 weeks, but you obviously didn't get to full term. What happened? So at 32 weeks, I was feeling fine at this point and it had been a completely normal day. I think we'd been for a walk, went shopping and went to my daughter's friend's third birthday party, as you do. You know, I I was feeling really good and went to bed that evening. And shortly after that, I felt a sort of trickle of liquid between my legs. And my first instinct was actually like, oh my goodness, you know, am I bleeding? And there was no evidence. My first instinct would have been I've worked myself, by the way. <laughs> and, I, and I don't blame you for saying that, but I was very sure that I hadn't wet myself. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't think I was at that stage of pregnancy at that point where you know, that was a that was a thing at that point. <laughs> that wasn't an everyday occurrence. <laughs> Thankfully not. So I went to the loo and I was like, okay, I'm just going to ring the delivery suite. So I did. And they said, you know, come in and we'll just check you out. Which is the advice that they always give, don't they? If ever in doubt, just don't worry about kind of causing undue fuss just go get checked out give them a call chat to someone make sure that everything's hunky-dory yeah exactly so I popped in the car drove in we lived pretty pretty close and I guess because it was at night there was no point getting Brayden and my daughter up so yeah I went into the hospital I was seen by the triage team and they just conducted the usual tests whilst also asking me if they thought I might have weed myself um and you know I was sure I hadn't but they definitely put a bit of doubt in your mind at that point <laughs> hang on I mean maybe but anyway they you know I did the old pee in the pot they did an internal examination took blood tests and they did a CTG scan which is that one where they monitor the baby's heart rate strap around the belly exactly and everything was seemingly fine and you know, it almost felt like they were on the brink of sending me home until they checked the results of the amniotic fluid test, which is essentially the test that distinguishes between whether you have peed yourself or there is an amniotic fluid leakage. And that came back positive. So it was amniotic fluid. And I mean, it shocked it shocked everyone, but actually it particularly shocked the doctors in the room. And things escalated quite quickly from there. So the one thing that they were really set on was you have to keep this baby in you until 34 weeks. And that is because I think some quite critical lung development happens in those in that stage between 32 and 34 weeks. And there were other risks that were presented to me that I can't remember what they were, but I definitely remember sort of thinking they sounded pretty scary at the time and, you know, a good thing to be avoided. So they gave me some antibiotics to prevent any infection and they gave me a nice steroid injection in my bum, which was to promote Isabel's growth again, because obviously if, if, if she were to be delivered within the next two weeks, they wanted her to be as developed as possible. So that was it. I stayed in night. I obviously updated my husband and yeah, had this plan of just trying to keep baby in and ward off any infection and not go into labor. Wow. Okay. So you're in hospital at 32 weeks. You've got a new plan and it's just 
mission, keep baby into 34 weeks. And I guess, you know, babies have been delivered before 34 weeks and, and they survive. But your directive is keep her in for another another couple of weeks. So you're in safe hands in the hospital. What goes down next? So it's so we're now on Sunday. And if I'm totally honest, not a lot is going on. I mean, it's boring, right? <laughs> yeah. In the hospital. And also, I, you know, nothing has changed with my condition. So I'm sort of feel like I'm now totally normal and almost starting to feel a little bit guilty that I'm in hospital and taking up a spare bed because certainly to to look at me, I'm fine. All the tests are coming back fine. All the monitoring is all coming back fine. And we were visited by consultants and again, they just presented the same advice. So, so as long as you don't get an infection, as long as there's no bleeding and the baby continues to be sort of fine and you don't go into labor because I've got that sort of scar that they don't want me to go into labor with, you'll be fine. But later on that evening, things changed pretty significantly. So my waters fully broke. And I mean, I know this isn't the medical term, but gushing is what went on. Like the movie, movie scene. Uh, Yes. I mean, and I was pretty shocked at how much liquid was coming out of me. So at that point, I called the midwife and <laughs> said, you're going to need to bring some towels here as well. And made <laughs> made some, an all-important text to my husband telling him to bring me some more pants. But were you calm at this point? Were you still like... I felt, I think because I was in hospital, I felt in safe hands. So I was like, if if I'm going to be anywhere, I'm in the I'm in the very best place. So yeah, you just need to holler down the hall type thing. Yeah. So I th- I was quite shocked, but the midwives just seemed really unbothered by the fact that my waters had just broken and I had. Oh really? Yeah. I mean, and that really surprised me as well. But what they sort of went on to explain was that actually you only need enough water for the baby to drink and pee out and drink and pee out. So I didn't even know that that's what they did with amniotic fluid when they were inside you, but that's what they do. They drink and pee and they drink and pee. No, I had no idea either. And they were like, so, you know, they don't actually need that much. So it's it's fine. And we'll just continue to monitor her. I think they maybe put me on a CTG scan sort of every six to eight hours. And, you know, they were kind of pretty comfortable with that plan. So again, I kind of went along with it. I went to bed and I then woke up at about three in the morning with this unbelievable pain across my abdomen and I think I can honestly say that I'd never felt pain like this and I had no idea what it was it was pretty difficult or pretty painful to move but I sort of shuffled along to the loo and I mean I was expecting to see blood because something I have such this this sort of type of pain isn't isn't normal there's got to be something going wrong here anyway but there was there was nothing so I went back to to bed and I called the midwife and by the time she came I was hyperventilating I was shaking uncontrollably I was free I was freezing but also sweating profusely I mean I wasn't in a wasn't in a good state and I couldn't really bear to be touched anyway they obviously sort of got their act together pretty quickly and they did a CTG which said the baby was fine it also gave them the confidence that I wasn't in labor 
and the doctor examines me and you know again like everything looked fine I just had this unexplained severe pain (laughs) so they gave me one paracetamol (laughs) which (laughs) that sounds like it did nothing yeah it didn't touch the sides and then they then upped their game a bit and gave me a tramadol and this I hadn't heard of it before but it's a a very strong painkiller and almost I think sort of like an opioid type of painkiller and I you know obviously I checked it was safe the baby and they said yeah absolutely and that did do a lot to dull the pain I could still feel it but it was dulled and at this point we're probably about five in the morning and consultant on duty and the midwives are putting forward suggestions of what could be causing the pain and you know it was things like well you do have this quite unusual scar and perhaps the baby's pushing against it or because you've lost your fluid maybe there is more pressure on your abdomen perhaps the baby is on a nerve all of these to me sounded quite plausible suggestions yeah totally they seem fairly logical don't they yeah so I sort of just kind of went along with it really and you know again like I I wasn't getting a sense from them that it was panic stations so I was sort of like okay you know it's it's fine and the most important thing is Isabel's fine you know I could still feel her kicking the CTG said you know her heart rate was was fine so you know as horrible as it was being in that amount of pain and not knowing the cause I was also sort of reassured by the team around me right so Monday morning comes round, Braden comes back to the hospital and I'm still in pain, but you know, I've sort of still got these painkillers, which are definitely having an effect. And we have a growth scan planned for that day. And we'd actually, that had been in the diary for a long time because Isabel had been tracking on the small side, which quite frankly is hardly surprising given that, you know, I'm not the world's biggest person. And actually Ivy... Well, neither is Brayden. Neither is Brayden. And Ivy was also on the small side. So anyway, I wasn't worried about this, but they they tend to get quite worried about these things. So we had a growth scan plan and actually it was really great actually to go in for a proper ultrasound and find out what on earth was going on so I sort of shuffled yeah and probably yeah a welcome opportunity to actually see her rather than just hearing her heartbeat given the kind of last 48 to 72 hours yeah for sure so I sort of shuffled my way to the scan and actually for further reassurance there were two sonographers there not one which was also good to see and anyway they confirmed that there was no liquid but again that there was just enough for her to drink that her head was very low down but essentially she looked fine and to stick with this plan of keeping her in for another couple of weeks and so Mm -hmm. for the rest of the day I sort of I I felt fine you know bar a bit of pain I tried to keep pretty still and made a few work calls and tried to wrap things up, sort of telling my team that I was probably going to go off on maternity leave a bit sooner than had originally been planned. And so nighttime comes, go to bed, and again, everything seems okay. We're now into Tuesday morning, the early hours of Tuesday morning, and I think I'm woken at about 5am by a woman in one of the adjoining sort of beds in labour, definitely nearing the latter stages by the sound of it (laughs) Um, anyway so I got up to go to the loo and when I did I noticed that I was covered in a rash and I'd had this recurring rash for the past couple of days which 
we just put down to a reaction to the antibiotics, but it had kind of flared up. So I shuffled down to the midwives who were just sitting around having a chat because obviously at 5am, not too much is going on. And, you know, they said, look, don't worry about it. So you're showing them the rash? Yes. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Um, Go back to bed. And, you know, that's fine. So I did, went back to bed. And within a few minutes, that pain that I described having the previous night absolutely ripped through me again. My goodness. The onset was so quick and so severe. It just completely knocked me sideways. So I pressed the buzzer for the midwife and... In it, along she came and she was equally as shocked as I was to see me given that she, you know in the state I then was in given that she had seen me only a few minutes ago sort of being able to stand and talk and once again it was just this intolerable pain I couldn't bear to be touched and usually I have a pretty high pain threshold but this was absolutely next level and she tried her best to make me comfortable I mean, some of these bits are quite comical. She sort of like went off and tried to find, you know, came back with an assortment of birthing balls to see if maybe if I put my leg on one, would that help? And eventually, you know, she landed on a peanut shaped one. And she's like, I think this is the one. And I mean, yeah, again, I mean, it didn't make any any difference. And she because again, you're just assuming that it's a a trapped nerve or a cramp of some variety or. To be honest, at this point, I'm pretty scared because the pain is so intense and and I've got no idea what it is. And they are just throwing out suggestions like no one is giving me anything concrete. And I think I think now this is happening again. And I, I it's probably even worse now than it was before that. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm sort of pretty in combination everything is just starting to freak you out yes exactly and so she administered another tramadol for me and you know I I remember sort of like just grabbing onto her hand because I was in so much pain and she was like um please don't do that I'm gonna need it you know but I was like well what can I do this is just unbearable and eventually you know after she tried to kind of get me comfortable although to sort of somewhat no avail she was like look I've got to go on my rounds and I just remember so vividly saying to her or pleading with her please don't leave me because I was terrified you know and and it yeah it's quite I'm not a vulnerable person you know I'm quite a strong person but at that point I you know I did feel very vulnerable and was really scared but you know that that was it and I probably drifted in and out of a kind of you know medically induced sleep with the with the tramadol and I you know I was exhausted as well kind of going through when your body goes through that pain and at about half seven in the morning I felt Isabel do an almighty turn and I know I keep saying that you know it was the worst pain I've ever felt but this was particularly excruciating and turning when they are at that age and that size in you it's a pretty big movement Mm -hmm. as it is and it felt to me like she went from being head down so if you remember the sonographer had said yeah you know she's definitely got her head pretty far down and it felt like she'd gone from head down and just you know sort of flipped herself transverse and you know on the one hand I was like oh my god that was possibly the the worst pain I've ever felt 
in my life. But there, it was also reassuring because I felt her move. And, you know, this whole time, you know, no matter what I'm feeling and the pain I'm going through, I just want to make sure that my baby is going to be okay. So my husband arrives about half an hour later and I actually request a CTG scan at that point because I think I'm quite sort of rumbled by that turn and it just it just didn't feel right and I'm not sure how much I felt her move since then and I know it's only been half an hour or so but it, you know something just sort of was would just felt a bit wrong and so I requested a CTG scan and um, they bought me some shreddies beforehand. And I think I managed about two mouthfuls, but I was starting to get quite anxious at that point. And your mother's gut is so strong, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Actually, that's such a, it's such a good point. So they support in the CTG monitor and you know the process, placing the belts around your belly and, you know, putting the monitors where you expect the baby's um, heart to be. And just nothing came through, no sound. And that kind of panic starts to rise up in you. But, you know, you're trying to control it because you know what these sort of scans can be like. You need to move You need to move the monitors around a little bit to sometimes find the right place. And particularly as I'd felt her move to a different position. And so the midwife said, look, I'm going to go and get another scanner and left Brain and I together. And, you know, I was there just desperately trying to move these monitors to hear anything. And quite often the placenta can sound like a heartbeat. And, you know, well, it turned out that what I, th- I thought I'd found the heartbeat. And then the midwife came back and, you know, sort of looked at me and said, look, I'm really sorry, but that's that's the placenta. Anyway, they they brought in another machine and I mean, it was sort of like some 1920s portable ultrasound. <laughs> and at this point, the senior consultant had come in as well and they were trying to get a picture on this machine, but they weren't seeing what they wanted to see. So they made the decision to get me a proper ultrasound. So we had to go back to the place to the previous room that we had been at the day before when I'd had that growth scan. Actually, I have to say it is, it's pretty amazing here what the body can do. So bearing in mind, I could barely stand at that point. I think my husband had had to, you know, almost carry me to the loo and lower me down and onto the loo seat and hold me there whilst I went to the loo. And suddenly, you know, having this panic rise through me and the adrenaline kick in, I could walk you know, albeit somewhat hunched over, but I was like, just get me to that ultrasound room. You know, I can do it. Let's go. Yeah. And so, you know, back to the same room as we'd been less than 24 hours before. And it just, you know, the rigmarole of like you turning on the machine, letting it sort of, you know, heat up, putting the gel on your belly, everything just seemed to be taking forever. And there was so much tension in the room and they put, the probe on my belly and just just nothing that was it there was no heartbeat and no movement and she'd gone oh my goodness Cindy I'm so sorry yeah and the obvious question here is do they know why why she died, why her heart had stopped beating at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose this takes us to the next section of of the story. So, I mean, we're probably now at about nine o'clock in the morning on, on Tuesday. And because I had 
eaten my two mouthfuls of shreddies, they said, oh, I need to wait about six hours or something until they could do a C-section to take her out. And so we so we scheduled in for about 3 p.m. for a C-section, which is quite a long time to wait with, for want of a better phrase, your dead baby inside you. Anyway, you know, at 3 p.m. we were called in and got on the table about to sort of have the epidural type thing and then um, an emergency C-section called it. We called in, so I got wheeled back off. And anyway, finally we we got there at about 7 p.m. And actually, I think it was the same operating theater that I had had my C-section with Ivy. So, you know, I knew the process. I knew what was going to happen. But the silence in the room was, you know, when people say that sort of silence is deafening, it really was. I mean, given how many medics are in that room to perform the procedure and monitor me, etc. I mean, the atmosphere was so somber. And everyone knows that they're here to deliver a dead baby. So it's, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty full on brutal. Um, and I just remember, you know, you're lying on your back as you are when you're having a C-section and there's a kind of blossom tree on the ceiling with butterflies. And I think I was just kind of staring at that, still not really being able to compute what on earth was going on. And we spoke in the last episode about how when we were being medevaced, I felt like I was watching my life mm-hmm. in a movie. And I guess that kind of staring at the ceiling is is a similar feeling of, is this actually happening to me? Completely. You know, I read about this stuff, but really? Me? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I remember looking at Brayden and I think he sort of was crying and I don't think I was even crying. You know, I was just watching everything happening, not definitely my brain was not ready to accept what was going on at that point anyway as the obstetrician was cutting me open he popped his head around the shielding curtain and said I need to tell you this now your uterus has torn open and that's probably what caused her death so essentially that my t-section scar had split wow yeah. And when they, he said that, I actually think I said sort of it out loud. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense now. Because suddenly the pieces of the puzzle came together. Come together. Yeah. Uh, you know, which that explained that excruciating pain over the past couple of days had been my scar slowly tearing open sort of millimeter by millimeter until it finally burst and that big turn I felt was it completely giving way sadly and that's yeah when when she would have passed away oh my goodness Inia that's just what what a tragic tragic turn of events and I mean, going back a step as well, again, just, I mean, there aren't many similarities in, in our in our stories. But again, you know, listening to you say that you had to wait just because you'd had a couple of mouthfuls of shreddies from that moment where you hear in the ultrasound, you know, so sorry, your baby is, you know, gone. 
to then having to wait for that seat section that's kind of you know and we'd made the decision that we were withdrawing life support you the last thing you do want to do then is is wait like that waiting is just oh I just feel feel for you on so many levels but listening to you describe everything and thank you so much for for going through that again with us but the whole story and all of these kind of moments, these pieces of this jigsaw jigsaw that you were trying to figure out on the way and then this pain that no one could give you really, you know, kind of final answers for even though suggestions were being thrown out. I guess in hindsight, they're pretty strong warning signs. And do you feel like there could have been a different outcome it's good old benefit of hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there are lots of things that we all could have done differently. Um, I mean, at the time, I wasn't thinking like that at all. Uh, you know, I probably because I was still in shock, but it's actually hospital policy to investigate any stillbirth. And whilst I was in recovery. Well, that's good. Yeah, it, it is. And whilst I was in recovery, they came and explained that to me and said, look, we will, you know, we will sort of investigate what happened. Not that you care at that point, because you just want your baby back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. And they escalated ours to a serious investigation quite quickly, because I think they recognized that something could have been done, you know, that would have changed the outcome. And subsequently they have actually admitted full liability for Isabel's death oh wow and how does that make you feel I guess definitely uh, all the things (laughs) yeah yeah I mean so many different emotions kind of going on but you know at my most heightened points of of grieving I was incredibly angry and if I'm totally honest I obviously still am I don't think that I'm one of those people that can just forgive and forget when it comes to something like that, you know, because essentially her death was, was avoidable. And, you know, in my mind, it was completely pointless that she died. And, and, and we actually conducted a full post-mortem to rule out any other possible causes and leave no stone unturned. And that came back saying she was a perfectly healthy little girl, Aww. which, you know, again, kind of makes the whole thing even harder to know that there was nothing, nothing wrong with her. So, you know, I've, I've obviously had a lot of time to, to reflect. And I think what makes me most angry is that the dangers of having or the risks associated with that T-section were never explained to me. So the fact that a T-section has a heightened risk of that scar rupturing, not only during labor, but also pregnancy too. If someone had told me that, you know, the moment I was feeling that pain in hospital around my abdomen scar area, I would have, you know, sort of like piped up and said, do you, do you think this could be to do with my scar? But it never occurred to me, which now talking about it seems ridiculous that it, you know, it never even occurred to me that a scar, that scar could rupture. And it made it, yeah, it makes me angry that I wasn't armed with the information, the necessary information mm. to carry my baby safely. Yeah. But you, you know, you think that the experts are, so you trust them, don't you? And, and that's where, I guess the 
the difficulty lies. Yeah, it's a sort of bittersweet situation. You know, when it came to them admitting liability, it was good that we didn't have to fight them. But once again, completely heartbreaking because it was avoidable. Yeah. I, and, you know, there there are no, at least as we've discussed, and there are no kind of bright signs, but you got answers and you did get that admission. So you can, I guess, have closure maybe in some way, but I mean, there are no words really. And just thank you so much for, for sharing that whole story and all of your experiences and feelings. And I know that little Isabel is having a blast in the stars with Leah. I don't know where I'm from, blast. I've never said that before in my life, but I think they're having a good time. But given that your uh, uterus has a bit of a habit of opening up, <laughs> uh, what does that mean for 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 the future, for, for you having more babies? Yeah, I mean, definitely safe to say that my uterus is now somewhat temperamental. <laughs> there are quite a lot of risks that were presented to us by the obstetricians about me carrying again. So they advised that we should wait at least 12 to 18 months before even considering another pregnancy and that there would be a 25 to 35% chance of the scar rupturing again. And that even if we did make it through, they would still deliver at 30 weeks. Okay. Bearing in mind that, you know, they had put the fear of God into me delivering, you know, anything before 34 weeks. That rang quite a lot of alarm bells as well. We sort of weighed it all up. And with all of those risks, plus the anxiety that would come with carrying again, you know, and you know what it's like when you're pregnant, you have all sort of number of tweaks and pains and, you know, and things in your abdomen as throughout pregnancy. And just thinking that every single one of those could be the beginning of my scar tearing. It's it just too much. So we explored the surrogacy avenue and that is the current journey that we are now on. Wow. And now that is... A journey I cannot wait to discuss with you. So thank you for sharing Isabel's story. And uh, I can't wait to hear more. So it's time to, for us to have another moan in the Mother's Moan segment of this podcast. We get to have a little moan and groan about something that's grinding our gears. So Zin, well, actually, I mean, you've moaned enough frankly no I'm kidding (laughs) what's what's getting your goat today oh my goodness okay I'm gonna say something that absolutely infuriates me I mean I feel like it could turn into a rant more than a moan (laughs) but anyway it's good to get it off my chest so my thing is if when you've been through your baby dying or quite frankly you know anyone close to you who's died or any sort of tragedy that you may have experienced and people say to you after weeks or perhaps months or even longer of not being in touch oh i'm so sorry i've not been in touch but i just couldn't think of what to say or i just couldn't find the right words <laughs> and i'm like i'm sorry what (laughs) any any words any words would do right you know but to say nothing and 
ignore the situation is bordering on unacceptable for me, quite frankly. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. And that is uh, that is such a good tip for anyone out there who is struggling with the right words. It's not about you. You it's way better to say the wrong thing and learn from it than say nothing. That like just say hi, just I'm checking in. Yeah. Yeah. Just a few words on a text like, I'm so sorry to hear what you've been through. I hope you're okay. That is all it takes. <laughs> and you know, I'm yeah. not talking about you know that I expect this from the person who I've walked past once in the work canteen. You know, I'm talking about people who know you and who know you well. That it's mm-hmm. definitely about just getting in touch because it's a really lonely, sad shit time. And yeah. you just want to be supported as much as you can. So yeah, definitely my tip, you know, just reach out to that person, even if you feel awkward doing it, they will be really grateful and appreciative. So better to say something than nothing at all. 100%. So I mean, right, let's switch up um, things, something a little bit more positive, shall we? And um, Maya, how about you tell me what or who you are going to be picking up this week? So actually not unrelated to the whole, you know, not getting in touch. Um, I do recognise that it is difficult. It, it is difficult to, to find the right words. It is difficult to figure out what the right thing to do is. And I get that. So my big up is actually to those who who make that little bit of extra effort to show up when, when it is hard to. And we actually had some instances of people, who, not even our closest friends, but people who had kind of heard what we were going through or, you know, weren't in that sort of close circle that we're coming in and out of our house every day to drop things off or check on us. But people that were a little removed from that, but still wanted to do something nice for us and show their support would leave stuff on our doorstep. They'd just, they'd make food without, yeah, they, they'd make and I'm talking obviously in the in the weeks following Leo passing away. Um, sorry, should have added that context. But <laughs> in those, you know, early weeks and early months of losing him and coming back to to Cayman and getting on with our lives in some way, people would just not ask. You know, not that. Do you guys need food or do you guys need anything? Which can also be exhausting. You know, the constant. You know, what do you need? And and you don't want to say I need something. So usually you'd respond to that and say No, 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 we're fine. But people who would, without being asked, make us food or pick up a few groceries, some treats and just drop them on the doorstep and send us a text message or we'd see them kind of driving off. The dog would usually bark and and we'd go out to the doorstep and and find something on our doorstep that would just say, you know, someone's thinking about you, someone cares. I love that you had these sort of covert caregivers. (laughs) (laughs) If we did, and it's a small island and a small community, but I think even if I lived in a big city now, I would probably sort of drive out of my way to do that sort of thing because it meant so much. And I think it can be a little bit nerve wracking, can't it? Sort of running up to someone's doorstep when, when actually sometimes you don't want to be seen. You, you know that someone's, you know, inside grieving and in pain and maybe doesn't want visitors. You know, we might have been sitting, you know, in yesterday's pajamas, not willing to, not wanting to face the world. But so, so recognizing that we might not be up to visitors, we might not, you know, they don't want to be seen because they don't, they don't need your time and they don't want to come in for a cup of tea but they just want to you to know that they're 
they're thinking of you and, and here's something nice that they've done for you. And it just meant the world. And so Aww. if those people are listening, you know who you are and thank you. And if you're wondering what to do um, for someone grieving or going through a tough time, yeah, those gestures that are, are sometimes just, yeah, they kind of take a bit of confidence to, to do them. Do them. Please do them. Thanks for listening to episode number two. Next week, we're talking about that really joyful topic of funerals and how you navigate a funeral or memorial when your baby has just passed away. So make sure you tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Making It to Motherhood. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast as well as follow us on Instagram at Making It to Motherhood. And please do spread the word and share our podcast with your friends and family. We hope you have a great week and thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening.